This episode is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, The Young Turks, Citizen Radio, The Progressive Magazine, CBS News, The Majority Report, and The Tom Hartman Program. And a quick question that if absolute power corrupts absolutely, then how much do you think 80,000 volts of power might corrupt? A court has okayed barring police officers with high IQs. I find this very interesting. There's a man who wanted to become a police officer, and he scored too high on the intelligence test, and then he sued because he was not hired because his IQ was too high, and he has actually lost the appeal in that lawsuit. The court, the second U.S. District Court of Appeals in New York ruled, no, 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 it's okay for that other court that said it was okay not to hire you because the standards were the same for everyone who took the test. You were not particularly singled out for any reason. You just were outside of the requirements of the test. Now, if the test required him to be white, then I think we might have a little bit of a different story, but smart people aren't considered a protected class. So we're talking about uh, a 49-year-old college graduate, Robert Jordan. He took the exam and he scored a 33. So that's equivalent to an IQ of 125. And New London, Connecticut police only interview candidates who score between 20 and 27. So he was way above the maximum range. And the theory for this, it's actually a theory that in and of itself is probably worthy of some debate. The theory is if you have too high of an IQ, if you score too well on this test, you're more likely to leave police work because you get bored and you want to go do something else after going through costly training, training that's costly for the department. So the um, uh, the average for police officers is 21 to 22. It's the equivalent of about 104 IQ, just above average. This actually reminds me of the book Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, where there's a discussion of why is it that people are basically bred or, or, or uh, hatched in, in Brave New World. And there's a discussion in the book about, wait a second, why do we deliberately manipulate some of these human embryos to not be that smart? And the explanation in the book, the book was written, I think, in, in the 30s, early 30s, I believe, is, listen, you need people that have less ambition and are less lucid intellectually because otherwise you won't get anybody who can tolerate doing more simple jobs. And when I read it, I said, wow, that's... Kind of a sad commentary, but I could understand why there's elements of truth there. And what this police hiring rubric basically tells us is that exact same thing. We need people who aren't as smart as police officers. The idea that if we had really, really smart police officers, we'd be better off may not be true. Your thoughts, Lewis? I mean, it seems like it's just a financial aspect that they're worried about. This is terrifying. Um, you know, I, I, I find it uh, shocking, to be honest, that that they're willing to throw out someone who might, uh, you know, might be able to make the tougher decisions more quickly, the right decisions more quickly when things are happening and, and be smarter and more pragmatic about things when, when bad situations are happening. Um, just because that there's a chance that this person might leave after, after a few years. Um, I mean, we're talking about people's safety, people's lives. And I think, across the board, you want smarter policemen, uh, no doubt. Uh, it, it's, it's too bad that the money has to come into it. 
All right, Lewis taking a strong stance on this. And Lewis, you actually have some thoughts. You think, you've often commented that you think that there's too many not intelligent people in police work and that it's actually a problem for departments. Have you not? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think it is. Of course, um, you could be an evil genius and be working for the police, and that could be a huge problem as well. But um, I think it's not just smarter police that we need. I think we need some type of extensive and and deep and proven character testing uh, as well. All right. Lewis has a lot of thoughts about police. We know that. He's had plenty of run-ins with them, so certainly uh, uh, an opinion based on quite a bit of experience, I think we can say. Lancaster, California cops were in the search for a wanted parolee. Unfortunately, they raided the home of the wrong couple and started firing uh, their guns. In fact, they shot 15 rounds and uh, a man by the name of Angel Mendez was struck 10 times and that resulted in him losing his leg. His pregnant wife was also hit once and she feared that she might lose the baby, but thankfully she did not. She's healthy. Uh, Angel Men uh, Mendez is also healthy, but as I mentioned, he lost his leg. Now, uh, a federal judge has awarded the couple $4 million as a result of this excessive force and this ridiculous police brutality. So I'm glad they at least got some degree of justice, uh, which doesn't always happen these days. But this goes to our talk about police state. Shoot first, ask questions later. I mean, you remember the old movies where they'd say, uh, freeze, put your hands up, right? Yeah, drop the, or drop, even drop the weapon. Drop the weapon, right? They, it's the wrong house. They didn't even ask. They just go literally firing in. Yeah, Mendez said that they like shot their way through the front door, and that um, you know he he does concede that there was a BB gun on his bed. It looked like and a rifle. It looked like a rifle, um, and he said that like he he did not grab the rifle to like shoot at the cops or the BB gun to shoot at the cops. He just like wanted to move it away, push it away, so he could get up. But in the process of doing that, I guess the cops thought that he was going to try to shoot them, and then they immediately started shooting at him. But it's it's such a I mean it's a scary situation. They're first of all in the wrong house, and imagine that the couple is asleep when this is happening. They're asleep and they bust through the door, and you're like disoriented. Yeah, like, you don't why, know what's going I, to on. To some extent, why couldn't he have picked up the gun? Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, if you have no idea who's coming into your house, isn't like don't gun owners always say, "Oh, the first thing I get to do is shoot you in the head if you're coming to my house." He doesn't know they're cops. He could they could be crackheads, or whatever, right? So, but that's why we used to say, drop your weapon. Right, like, we right. used to yeah, have, yeah, like, yeah. a moment. And yes, does that yeah, moment <clears throat> in, in imperil the cops a little bit? You know, just a certain percentage? I think it does, right? I, but that's what your cops, because you, you, we pay you to take that risk. And I don't take it lightly, well, you know, because like, you could be going into the wrong house. We, we're not only paying them to take that risk, we're paying them to be trained better than a pedestrian or some regular Joe or whatever who has a judge there's a judgment one must make when you're face to face with someone with a BB gun mm -hmm. do I shoot ten times and blow this person away or do I engage them and say hey drop the weapon 
put your hands up, get on the floor, or whatever that we've seen in movies, but we expect more. I mean, that's when it, when it comes down to these sort of blurred lines with like, there's a weapon in there and there's not. It's like, they're trained. They're supposed to have a higher degree of training. You know, That's the thing. They're expert. Right. They should. They're, they're right. No, and we and we give them a gun and permission to use it. Yeah. You know, and, and with that comes an enormous degree of responsibility and expectation yeah. of what your behavior might be. I also, you know, and I, I'd love to have a, a serious because I say this and I and not knowing and not having gone through police training, but I've read it enough, and I've read a lot of books about cops written by police reporters, written by cops, people who are sympathetic to police as I am like you're never supposed to shoot to wound right and I don't quite why? get why right like obviously well, no, you no, know why no no I know why because of course then they could still have their weapon but in some circumstances again it's about it goes to what you said like well so maybe there's a little more risk but again like it ends up being that they got to shoot a guy 10 times like he had a BB gun how did he get shot because he was still moving and he was probably still trying he was in a state of probably absolute shock moving his body all over the place just as someone would with 10 cops on them beating them sure right you yeah would, you would be freaking out for this is you're dying you're dying you're gonna do everything you can to fight back and that's often then misidentified mistaken for fighting back or being aggressive and that's where the training comes in. You're supposed to know the difference in and, these and, situations. And, and, and they, I wanted to say one more thing about the training. Uh, that's what I'm worried about, that we're not really training them that much anymore to, to say, hey, you know what, put the weapon down. And, and we're not training them, hey, you've got the awesome responsibility. Now, I'm being unfair. I'm sure that many of the comps across the country are being trained that mm -hmm. way. But it seems to me that we're tilting the scales uh, on the side of, Go ahead and shoot first. Don't take any risks. And because we're all constantly doing overwhelming force, right, yeah. and we've come to believe yeah. that that's the right thing to do, yeah. when it isn't. Norristown, Pennsylvania. Um, I'm gonna. I'll read this in a. So there is a law that if the cops come to your house over three times, um, that the state encourages or fines uh, the landlord to get rid of you. Oh God! Now, uh, at first, maybe some of you are thinking, "Oh, like if you have like loud parties three times, where do you think?" Uh, how do you think this creates a problem? Domestic abuse? Yes. Yeah. So uh, last year, uh, there was a woman named uh, Lakeisha Briggs. Her boyfriend physically assaulted her and the police arrested him. Um, and then the police officer told Mrs. Briggs, you were on three strikes. We're going to have your landlord evict you. So the police threatened Mrs. Briggs with eviction because she had received their assistance for domestic violence. Um, and then they talk about Norristown's law that I just told you about. Um, here's what's even more fucked up about that. What's even more fucked up 
is not only are you evicting a woman for being abused, but what happens in between when you know that law? Well, what happened to Mrs. Briggs? Um, after her first strike, Mrs. Briggs was terrified of calling the police. Uh, she did not want to do anything to risk losing her home. So even when her now ex-boyfriend attacked her with a brick, she didn't call. And later, when he stabbed her in the neck, she was still too afraid to reach out. Um, so what ended up happening was neighbors called. Um, so she was not, so not only are you punishing women who are being, uh, physically abused, but you are also, uh, scaring the shit out of them yeah. and you're enabling more abuse because they don't want to lose their home. That's crazy. Send yeah, me the link. To I it. did. Thank you. So that was from the ACLU. Um, so they're suing, which is awesome, but uh, Norristown is not the only place, um, that this is happening. There are a bunch of laws like that. And again, it's so classic where people, when, when Congress or whoever pitches it, they're probably pitching it as, you know, like, well, you know, you don't want a bunch of loud neighbors because no one ever thinks about women. Yeah, there are certain communities where there's like policies that you have to arrest both people when there's a domestic violence dispute. Right, 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 right. I remember that. But also like, um, also the... <sighs> If a dumb law gets passed like that, and let's say we're assuming the best out of that state government, and they were doing it because of noisy parties. I keep using noisy parties because nothing makes me more mad um, than noisy parties. But it was probably like drug busts and stuff. Or like whatever. That. Yeah. At what point when you're a cop and a singular, a singular person, when you get there and you just go, sorry, lady strike three like at what point do the police officers start speaking up because i gotta tell you like if you're not speaking up you're just as fucking bad i mean you are enabling abuse you are a police officer whose job is it to stop crime and you are enabling crime uh against a woman like the fact that while he was there after she got beaten up while they are arresting the dude who beat her up he's like also by the way how do you fucking say that well this is why it's important to have an independent like inspector general's office where it's important to have a place where police officers can file those kinds of grievances because what happens with stuff with uh, police forces where there's not an IG office is you find a lot of police officers, like a lot of them, yeah. who oppose uh, stop and frisk, who oppose drug busts, who think pot should be legalized, who don't want to waste their times on these like small time dealers, who do want to do stuff like help with rape cases and stuff like that. But what are they going to do? Speak out to their supervising officer and maybe get fired or demoted? Well, and then you also have a lot of people who, a lot of men who, uh, who think that just like rape, a lot of times uh, domestic violence is the, the, the woman's fault. Like, why does she stay with him? But I, I bet mean, you there are a lot of cops, too, who think, wow, this is a really fucked up policy. But maybe they don't feel like they are empowered to, like, go anywhere and file a complaint. Right. Or think, like, I just want to get through the day. I just want to get a paycheck and take care of my family. And I don't want to stir the pot, you know, yeah. not excusing it. It's a fucked up policy. And if you enforce it, you should feel really bad about yourself. But I do also recognize that maybe there's not like mechanisms in place for people to like, you know, file those grievances. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it it's so crazy that a lot of I mean it's not crazy, it makes perfect sense. But a lot of um these kind of rape culture defenders 
or people who would turn a blind eye to domestic view to domestic abuse. These are literally people who have been through a bad divorce and suddenly they're just like bitches. But it honestly like like I've heard guys where you're describing domestic abuse and it's like, did she cheat on him? And it's like, uh, does that, it fucking matter? That doesn't matter. <laughs> Holy shit, buddy. Yeah. Um, well, I think this is why it's so important to have official uh, policies in place that preserve our, like protect human rights and ensure equality. Yeah. So you can't have subjective uh, remarks like that where people are saying, you know, well, if the bitch cheats, anything is fair game. You whoa, know, it's like, whoa, yeah. I, I'm really sorry about your personal experiences, but that doesn't give you the right to violate the human rights of this woman. Also, by the way, uh, if my husband was constantly threatening to beat the shit out of me, I would probably want to fuck someone else too. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. Sometimes Antonine Scalia surprises us, and Monday was just such a time. Scalia gave a scathing dissent against the 5-4 to four decision by the Supreme Court that lets police take your DNA when you're arrested. Scalia said, and I agree, that this is a violation of our Fourth Amendment rights. If you're convicted, it's okay for the police to gather your DNA, but not before, Scalia said, because if you're acquitted, why should law enforcement be able to have such personal information on hand? That's a good question, and I'm surprised it didn't concern the usually liberal Stephen Breyer, who joined the conservatives, Chief Justice Roberts, Clarence Thomas, Alito, and Kennedy, to form the majority. On the other side, look who Scalia joined in the minority. The stalwart liberals Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan, the latter two being Obama appointees. What this odd and mixed-up bunching of the court pretends is anybody's guess, but here's mine. The conservative wing of the Supreme Court is a bit clipped. Remember that Chief Justice Roberts endorsed the Affordable Care Act, which made Scalia almost apoplectic, and now Scalia is standing firm, at least on some Fourth Amendment cases, and maybe a First Amendment case or two down the road. Or at least we can hope so. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
Here's something really interesting out of Rialto, California. We've talked, Lewis, about recording the police and how increasingly police departments are aware of the law in terms of being recorded. We see, although we still see them, we see less and less of those incidents where the police is angrily caught on video taking a camera from someone and smashing it and that type of thing. And Rialto, California Police Chief William Farrar has a new idea. He did a test. Now, Rialto has about 100,000 people living in it, okay? Uh, William Farrar, the police chief, decided to do a test where he said, Here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put cameras on all of our police officers, and any time they get out of their cruisers to have any kind of exchange with someone who, who is uh, in, in Rialto, it's going to be videotaped. And let's see what effect it has on complaints against the police, Let's see what effect it has on how much force is used by police, etc. They did the test. They did this where um, they, they basically gave half of the police officers that were on duty at any particular time the cameras. And the, what, what they would do is when they get out of their car, they start the recording. But the camera also has the ability to add on to that recording the 30 seconds before when the officer actually hits start, if that makes sense. So you've got whatever the police officer chose to record plus 30 seconds before it, okay? Incredible results. 88% decline in the number of complaints filed against officers. Uh, instead of 24 in the preceding period that was observed, only three complaints against police officers. Force was used 60% less by police officers during the test period, 25 instances instead of 61 instances during the previous period that was observed. And when the cameras were in use, the force was twice as likely to have come from the officer not wearing the camera. So th those numbers I gave you, force was used 60% less. When it was used, it was mostly used by the officers not wearing the cameras, meaning those wearing the cameras were even more than 60% less likely to, to uh, not use force. Your thoughts, Lewis? No surprise here at all. I think uh, cameras should be mandatory on every cruiser, but I love having the idea of uh, a camera on every officer making sure that they're being recorded every time they do anything. I've said before that I think if you see officers dealing with anyone in any way, shape, or form, and you're there and you have the time, you need to take your phone out and start recording um, because this is the only way that you're going to stop police officers from abusing their power is if they know they're being watched. There were some privacy implications. The ACLU has gotten involved, but they've actually said, we're completely fine with this. We don't like those street cameras. We don't like the street surveillance cameras. We don't like the kind of overall monitoring where, where somebody is a police officer, could be anywhere in the city kind of looking at people through cameras. But this is actually really, really good. And we are seeing that, that it is working well. The problem is, um, is this, is this sustainable overall that now you are going to have uh, the, it, like, could this just be expanded nationwide, or will there start to be resistance? Rialto, California, does not represent the entire country, and for a number of different reasons, you could see police departments kind of uh, not wanting to do this. Of course, it's going to start at the town level, and countless, countless departments across the country are going to refuse. Then, of course, next you have to take it to the state level. Are states willing to mandate this? And um, if not, can it be done federally? I doubt that will ever happen. The other, problem, the, the other problem also to consider, though, Lewis, is 
if you believe that police control the entire system of cameras, we could get in a situation where, yes, things are being recorded, but any police evidence that's either exculpatory to the citizen or damning to the police could end up being lost at some point between the recording and the trial. But hopefully you would have policies in place where police would be penalized for that in some way. Right. What you have to do is th these have to be constant recordings. The police officers can't be in control of when they start or stop them. And uh, there needs to be serious penalties uh, if any data is, uh, is erased. President uh, Jack Lamar Robertson uh, apparently overdosed on his diabetes medi medication, something that his fiance felt was an apparent suicide attempt. Now, she called the authorities immediately. She called the paramedics. And while they were arriving on the scene, uh, she let them know that he was being extremely difficult and combative. So the paramedics decided to call police, and police arrived to the scene before the paramedics did. Um, after they confronted the man, um, they allege... The authorities allege that he uh, was being uh, dangerous, that he was being um, very, very combative, and they felt that they were threatened. They also believed that he was coming at them with a weapon, which, of course, he did not have. Uh, so they fatally shot him in front of his fiance, his mother, and his child. Eight-year-old daughter. So, look, you have to judge every case on its own merits, and if this ever goes to trial, it's a big if these days. Then, of course, you have to see like why did the cop think that he might have a weapon? Is was that real? Did they make that up afterwards to justify the shooting? You, look, you got to be fair to everybody, including the cops here, obviously, and see what the whole situation was. That being said, we cover stories like this every single day. And when you look at the macro picture, what do we have? In all in all these instances, you got a you know an 85 year old guy who's a little combative uh, and he picks up a curtain rod or something. They shoot him with this shotgun, not not with a bullet, but with a rubber pellet, I think it was. It was like a beanbag type Beanbag pellet. Because mm -hmm. he's 85 or 89, he was unbelievably, you know, old, honestly, right? Mm -hmm. Internal bleeding dies, right? A Down syndrome kid, they asphyxiate him. That was just yesterday, right? Oh, he was being unruly because he wanted to watch a movie twice. Now here, you call the paramedics for help. You called an ambulance. You said, please come help me. Mm -hmm. And instead of helping you, they come and they shoot you and they kill you. I remember uh, about two years ago, the reoccurring story when it came to police brutality was the overuse of non-lethal weapons like tasers. And it's incredible to me that when these stories are popping up now, I mean, they completely bypass the tasers altogether. Now they're just shooting people if they're a little combative. And again, we don't know all the details of this story. At this point, it's a he said, she said situation where the family is saying one thing and the cops are saying something else. But I always find it interesting that when these stories come up, the cops always point to, well, we thought that, that person had a weapon. Oopsie, that person actually didn't have a weapon. That's questionable. Why do you have non-lethal weapons? 
Aren't you trained to use that if you feel like there, there is someone there who's a threat? And then if that doesn't work, you might have to escalate and go to other measures. And I just want to know for the record, Jenk, very quickly, you know, he did overdose allegedly on um, diabetes medication. And I did some research on the med medication and what it could do to you if you do overdose. And it can create an intense anxiety and confusion. So he was not in the right state of mind at that moment. So it isn't, you know, unbelievable that he would be acting difficult but again there are other methods of restraining him immediately resorting to shooting someone to death is not the right way to go about it so I remember in the Boston bomber case they had tracked down this friend of of Tamerlan Zarniev you remember the story and then they had like seven eight officers in the room FBI guys and then they said they shot him and they killed him right in his own living room after they'd been interrogating him for hours and then they said oh he had a weapon they said, oh, he had a knife. Then they said, oh, he didn't have a knife, but he had some sort of weapon. Then they said, oh, okay, he didn't have a weapon. Yeah, but he overturned the table. So, I, <laughs> I mean, so when you look at it, I mean, how many times have we heard the story? And the problem is, in my opinion, the overall state of mind that we put all the cops in. It's like we, you're not cops anymore, it's like the military. We're in a state of constant war with our own citizenry. So if anybody gives you trouble, shoot first, ask questions later. Now, it's, think about the ramifications of this. So... Is this guy, like if you're in that community, now are you afraid to call for help? Because like, I mean, if you've got a situation, and a lot of medical situations, somebody is having involuntary actions, like physical, right? Mm -hmm. It might be that they're, you know, having a stroke, they're shaking, I don't know. I mean, the adverse reaction to many different kinds of medications, right? Are you now afraid to call the police? Because when the police come, the first thing they're going to do is shoot, right? So... I mean, it's, it's, it's outside the bounds of reason. And look, this case, again, could be adjudicated, adjudicated in a totally different direction, and maybe the cops had a reasonable belief that he had a weapon, right? Every case is different. But when you look at the totality, it paints an ugly, ugly picture where the police are no longer protecting us. They, it feels like they're at a, at a war against us. Yeah, so when you look at the prevalence of cases like this, it kind of makes you wonder, you know, is this because of the fact that some of them might be power hungry could it be the obsession with shooting a gun could it be because of the militarization of our police force i mean we have police departments right now that are not only using drones but ha literally have military tanks we just did a story on that last week where uh, the police department in dallas has a six hundred thousand dollar military tank right so it's it's the police state i mean it, this is just a symptom of that and one last thing. Now, look, this guy happens to be black, but it, it is, I really don't think it's about race. I think it's about class, right? And so I can guarantee you that if in Beverly Hills somebody called, or the Upper East Side, or Upper West Side of Manhattan, et cetera, you know, name any nice town or area in the country, right? Somebody calls and says, oh, uh, we need paramedics here, we need an ambulance, there's adverse reaction to diabetes medication. It is impossible that the cops would come in and shoot a guy dead in his house in Beverly Hills. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's never going to happen because they'd be so afraid that they would get in trouble, they would get fired, there would be ramifications. So the rich immediately will, you know, will they call in cops to help subdue the guy so they could bring him to the hospital? Yeah, of course they can do that. But they're not going to come in shooting, right? But here, you're not, you're in a poor neighborhood. 
Well, I mean, just in case, shoot first, ask questions and, later. And it, and it goes beyond, you know, the worry of consequences. I think it also has to do with the stereotypes of people that live in those neighborhoods, right? So if you're living in a poor neighborhood, I think that the stereotype and the assumption is that you're probably a deadbeat, you're probably dangerous. Oh, look at this person living in a low-class society, part of you know society. And then with Beverly Hills, oh, we're, well, they're wealthy. You know, they're hardworking. They're usually not troublemakers. So you're not going to go in there with some pre conceived notion. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, if you're having adverse reaction to diabetes medication, trouble me. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. This is L.A. Sheriff's Deputy Elton Simmons, and I bet you don't like him already. Seeing him there, hiding in the shadows, why can't he go catch some real criminals, you may be thinking? Or no wonder he has a record number of complaints. Who wouldn't complain about a guy whose sole purpose in life is to ruin your day? Around the corner. By the very nature of the business, all L.A. County traffic cops can expect to get at least a few complaints every year. A lot of them are petty, people just mad because they got a ticket, but regardless, they all get documented and placed in the officer's personnel file. Which is why Captain Pat Maxwell was stunned when he started looking through Simmons' file. I just said that's not possible. Although he did see lots of commendations. Looking back over the last 20 years, over the last 25,000 traffic stops, Captain Maxwell couldn't find one complaint. A record. Zero. I mean, Vegas or MIT could not give you the odds of the statistical probability of that. Obviously, Elton is doing something right. Something, ha yeah, it's got to be something. Do you but know what I, it is? No. No idea. No. Until the captain told him, Elton didn't even know he had such a record, let alone how he got it. It's just how I do it every day. So we trailed him for a day to see if we could figure out how he does it. Yeah, what's going on? How you doing today, man? First thing I noticed was that he has this pitch-perfect mix of authority I need to take care of that. and diplomacy. I don't want to keep pulling you over, though. With none of the attitude that sometimes comes with a cop. Uh, that's okay. That's good. Just, just be careful, all right? I'm here with you. I'm not up here. Because one thing I hate is to be looked down at. I can't stand it. So I'm not going to look down at you. That's why, in lieu of a lecture, he gives most people the benefit of the doubt. So, it happens. Of course, they still get the ticket. <laughs> it happens. Just not the guilt trip. <laughs> and drivers seem to appreciate right, well, that. You know, it's not, not that bad. So much so right. that by the end, some are downright smitten. You know what it is? It's just smile. Really? He's got a great smile. Really? Oh, yeah. You're, you're giggling now. Yeah, you just got a ticket. I just got a ticket. He's a nice guy. I mean, you know, it's... <laughs> 
I mean, how can you be mad at that guy? Apparently, you can't. Disarming. That's it, disarming. Time know? after time. Very uh, kind. Ticket after ticket. Never so happy to get a ticket in my life. We saw Officer Elton Simmons melt away a polar ice cap of preconceptions. And his boss says there's a lesson in there for hard-nosed traffic cops everywhere. Their excuse is, well, I give tickets all day long. I'm going to get complaints. Well, that's not true. There's a way. There is a way to do it. And Elton Simmons is the way. Certainly, no complaints here. Steve Hartman, on the road in Los Angeles. I didn't want to get caught up in sort of the classic libertarian argument that I that I get into with libertarians because I think there was there's a lot of value in talking about these problems and recognizing these problems without even necessarily getting into an argument about the solution here but I happen to think that if you can if you can get politicians to stop funding uh if you can get the political will to stop funding police departments to fight terror or the war on drugs, you certainly can muster the political will to get them to continue to fund but put restrictions on how that goes so that the execution of those plans is more in line with what you've sold in the first place. Uh, you can say the solution is just not fund these departments, but they're still going to have funds and you're still going to have, uh, you know, Buffy, police chief Buff who's going to look at those uh, new toys and say, that's where we're going to spend our money on. Because that's the thing that we can show people. You still have your police chief Kesslers out there, uh, which is not to, I don't want to paint with this such a broad brush, but the, the point is, is that I think inevitably, when you charge people with, with a role in society like being police officers, it is human nature that they're going to be a tend to abuse that authority i'm not saying all and i'm not even seeing the majority but there's going to be a strain in there there's going to be that constant tension like i say i put on a cop uniform for a week and it was i missed it for like months after that just walking around the street and just people come up to you and officer and you just say, well, wait one second. I'm talking to my partner. <laughs> you walk into a, a, a diner and they just immediately like, what can I do for you? Here's, I mean, it, it, it felt good. And I'm not saying that necessarily, that, 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 that comps aren't uh, deserved of that type of uh, respect in the, in the community. But then the question is, is how do you make sure that the flip side of that, the natural propensity for human beings, particularly ones who are attracted to those positions of authority, do not abuse that authority. 
And I don't think it's simply a question of don't provide them federal funds. I think it's a question of placing restrictions, really explicit restrictions on how those funds are to be spent. And then I think there's also just this broader uh, problem that we have of a war on terror and homeland security. I mean, I think that if you had some uniformity in terms of how uh, police officers are trained that it would developed on a federal level, you can make transparency that much easier. Why should there just be a uh, transparency in Maryland, say, and not nationally? Which isn't to say that you can't use that Maryland law as the basis of a federal law. And so, uh, you know, that's, I think, where, from a solution orientation, we diverge. The, the problem isn't that uh, federal dollars, per se, were the only impetus to this. It was a whole raft of things. Uh, and it's federal dollars that may be the best instrument in which to curtail it. But, you know, we've got a lot of, uh, there's a lot of tides pushing against us, not the least of which the Supreme Court, which consistently favors police authority over civil liberties, it seems to me. But very interesting discussion and definitely something important to, uh, to be thinking about. And, you know, like I say, when, um, I don't remember what context it was that maybe it was a youth group. I was involved in that had this cop come in. I think the cop was a friend of my dad's who was part of the SWAT team, but he was a normal cop, but then they kept the SWAT stuff. And I just remember him talking about, like, no one is allowed to go into my trunk and pull any of this stuff out, and it is criminally sanctioned. I mean, it was always just sort of like, we only go open up this box with this equipment under the most specific of circumstances. And it's quite clear that either on a federal level or a state level or a municipal level, those, those requirements, that bar to entry into that box full of the SWAT equipment has been lowered and lowered. And I suspect that's happened on a, on a, on a municipal and a state level. So maybe it's time for some uh, broader national federally emanating requirements and parameters for the use of this equipment. Who gets it and when?
Today's activism segment comes to you, as always, in partnership with the Unfuck It Up Project, where creator Katie Goodman and activism director Katie Klebusik highlight individuals and organizations working to change the world. Today's campaign, National Day of Protest to Stop Police Brutality. On October 22nd, the 18th day of protest to stop police brutality, repression, and the criminalization of a generation will take place across the country. Organized by the October 22nd Coalition, the annual action brings together targeted communities and allies in a show of solidarity with victims' families as they demand accountability and the end of abuse at the hands of those empowered to patrol our streets. October22.org has the information and links to events in your area. Their homepage also spotlights the higher-profile attacks, which have received some, but not nearly enough, national attention. David Silva of Bakersfield, California, a 33-year-old beaten to death. John Rana, 95, killed by a taser and a beanbag round in a Chicago nursing home. 16-year-old Kamani Gray, shot seven times by the NYPD, three of those shots in his back. Cephas Johnson, the uncle of Oscar Grant, whose story is depicted in the movie Fruitvale Station, intertwines his family's pain with the pain felt around the country. Quote, The call for the 18th National Day of Protest to Stop Police Brutality, Repression, and the Criminalization of a Generation is to bring forward the united, powerful, visual coalition of families victimized by police terrorism and to reach into all parts of our community. May our unity bring the change that our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren so rightfully deserve. Freedom, justice, Justice, equality, humanity, respect, and a right to take BART, the Bay Area Rapid Transit, and a right to walk to 7-Eleven for Skittles and iced tea without being executed, unquote. Visit October22.org to find the event near you, and for those seeking organizing assistance, legal aid, public education training, and support for victims and their families beyond next week's action, the National Police Accountability Project is a fantastic resource. The NPAP is a project of the National Lawyers Guild, a group protest veterans and occupiers know well as the helpful people in the green hats. Their mission is to end, quote, police abuse of authority through coordinated legal action, public education, and support for grassroots victims organizations combating police misconduct. If police brutality is an issue you are involved with, the National Police Accountability Project is available to support your efforts. Links for today's campaign will be in the show notes and all the usual places. Visit the Best of the Left Facebook page for updates on this and other activism opportunities. And also remember that we encourage you to use your phone or other mobile device to record audio of your experience at any political event you attend to send in to be used on the show. It looks like the woman who was driving her car around. I, this this has really been troubling me, and I just maybe I'm maybe I'm off base on this, but the woman who was driving that car around, uh, it looks like she was probably experiencing postpartum depression, and if not just that, she had some kind of serious mental illness on top of that because she was taking antidepressants and she was also uh, had been prescribed anyway. We don't know what she was on at the moment. Um, Antidepressants and uh, anti-schizophrenia drugs. 
And her family said that since the birth of her child, she was experiencing extreme depression. And there's this thing called postpartum depression. Remember the woman who drove her car with her children in it into the river and drowned her children and the other woman who, who killed her kid? I mean, there's uh, Susan Smith, I think, was one of the names. There was somebody else. We've, we've had these, these cases of these uh, women who have essentially killed themselves and, and, and in some cases their children. And this might have been her way of doing it. We don't know. What we do know is that she's not an al-Qaeda terrorist, and she's not, you know, a Tim McVeigh militia terrorist. She's not a homegrown right-wing American terrorist, and she's not a, a left-wing, you know, some other country, some other religion terrorist. She wasn't a terrorist at all. And I watched that video where there were five police officers standing around her car after it had already engaged in some pretty wild behavior. And I'm wondering, why are they not shooting out her tires? When they finally stopped her, and I've, uh, there are two stories I've read in the media, and I don't know that we actually have the, the full story yet, but I've seen one story that she got shot when she get, was getting out of the car, or had gotten out of the car, and the other that she was shot while she was still in the car. And I can't tell you that I know the truth of either of those because I've seen two reports in the media of both this morning. Maybe by now. I haven't, you know, I've been on the air for the last hour and a half. I haven't had a chance to check the news. Maybe we know now. But in either case, she was shot so many times in the face that they couldn't identify her by looking at her face. Think about that for a minute. They couldn't identify the body because it was so badly blown up with bullet holes. Why? Why didn't they shoot out the tires? If she was in the car, it seems to me like it's actually more dangerous to kill somebody who is in a moving car or what has the potential to be a moving car because when they die, if their foot is on the accelerator, it might fall fully forward and just jam that car forward right into the into the whole crowd of cops and everything else. And whatever happened to, to minimum force necessary? Or am I just totally off base on this? Is it just like really important if somebody runs to the police that you just shoot him in the head? And I, I realize it wasn't just running from the police. It was crashing the barricade at the White House and crashing the barricade at, at, at the U.S. Congress, the U.S. Capitol building. But is that an executable offense? Is the penalty for running the barriers at the White House and Congress death? What happened to the doctrine? I mean, I, I, I got to tell you, you know, I, 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 maybe I've been thinking about this more than uh, at other times in my life because last year when Louise and I both had surgery at the same time and we were both laid up in bed for three weeks and on a fair number of painkillers and we would you know we'd have these debates about who is sicker so who gets a, get to go out and make dinner or you know make a coffee in the morning and um, just to take our minds off it we opened a Netflix account and we watched like you know, five seasons worth of Macmillan and Wife's, because that was a show that we really loved when we were first married, when we were kids. Um, takes place in the in the seventies. You know, Rock Hudson and Susan St. James, and he's the 
chief of police or the commissioner of police for San Francisco. We watched all of the Columbo episodes that are available on Netflix. We were watching these old cop shows, right, from the 70s. And they didn't come out with SWAT teams. I mean, you had, you had like, you know, the commissioner and his buddy, I forget the guy's name, you know, they'd chase somebody four blocks before somebody would pull. In fact, like, Brock Hudson never carried a gun in that, in that show. If they shot somebody, they'd try to shoot their legs. They always tried to catch them. They try to box their car in with other cars. When did this nation become Dirty Harry? Was it with the Dirty Harry movies in the 80s? Was it Clint Eastwood who changed America? Who made cops feel that, you know, hey, I'm, 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 I'm PO'd, I'm going to shoot you in the head. Go ahead, punk, make my day. I actually think it was. I mean, when I look at the arc of American entertainment, and that's what Louise and I did for a couple of weeks, and I'm a big Clint Eastwood fan, I, not politically, but I, I love his movies. And while we were laying in bed, we watched all the old Dirty Harry movies, and we watched, uh, there, was, there was another couple that he was involved in, I forget the name of them. And, it and that was during the Reagan era, and as, as I recall. And it seems like that was the time when the guy who was the rogue cop, who during the, the, during the 70s, during the Macmillan and wife era, would have been not just fired from the police department, but arrested as a bad cop. With Dirty Harry and Clint Eastwood, it, early on in the series, it was like, oh, God, do we have to put up with this guy? He's nuts. You know, he keeps killing people. He's like, but he gets results, I guess. And toward the end, it was like everybody's cheering Dirty Harry. It's like everybody wants to be Dirty Harry. And it's now, now it's like every police officer in America wants to be Dirty Harry. Well, obviously a wild generalization. But our, our police forces, are they're, they're buying tanks, for God's sake. They're using SWAT teams to serve eviction notices and to, and to, and to take out pot dealers. Did they really need to shoot this woman in the head so many times you couldn't identify her? are now using handcuffs that have uh, an 80,000 uh, volt stun ability. So basically what they would do is they would use these handcuffs to stun the people that they're uh, detaining um, because they're not behaving appropriately. Now keep in mind, they're already handcuffed and you are a cop. You should be trained enough to not have to stun a person that's already handcuffed. But that's just my take on it. I could be wrong. <laughs> so uh, first of all, 
a normal taser is 50,000 uh, volts. This is 80,000 volts. This is 80,000 volts. And I should note um, that the police department in Missouri, and this is the Buchanan County Police Department, alleges that this is not really a big deal. Um, it's, in fact, let me give you uh, the graphic from Captain Jody Hovey. Uh, he says that it affects the muscles of the body and it doesn't really affect anything else. Everyone says it affects your heart. And it does not. What it does really is it just sends a charge through the body that locks up your muscles. Okay. Now keep in mind, as Jenk mentioned, he clarified, it's 80,000 volts. Tasers are 50,000 volts. How many people have died from tasers? Let's take a look. 500 people died in the U.S. after being shocked by tasers between 2001 and 2012. Tasers typically deploy a charge of 50,000 volts. So they say, well, some people say that it affects your heart. Uh, that's because it does. And... Different people are in different places in the spectrum of how much that would affect them. Mm -hmm. And some people die. Apparently, in about 11 years, 500 of them died. So these tasers are not toys. They're not to be played with. And they're not to be used willy-nilly. It's not like Star Trek. Is, you know, set your phasers on stun, and then the guy's going to get up in a minute. right? Sometimes they don't get up. Now, when you increase the voltage from 50 to 80,000, less people will get up. More people will die. But to me, the most outrageous part of this is they're already in handcuffs. Mm -hmm. You've already detained them. So to me, oh, like I get it, right? Could a guy who's already in handcuffs, as especially if you're as you're transferring them from one prison to another, and that's one of the scenarios they lay out, could they still shake around a little bit and cause you a little bit of trouble? Yeah, they can. Whoop-de-doo. You don't send 80,000 volts of electricity through them just to prove a point, like, hey, you better not do that. You've, you've got them under control. So, no, this is like, this is torture. That's yeah. what it is. I think, I think the reality is, and, and don't get me wrong, I know the majority of cops are not excited or happy about using non-lethal weapons, but there are a certain number of cops out there that get pleasure and enjoyment in using their nonviolent weapons. I mean, we've done numerous stories about cops that have used tasers on children. You don't know how to handle a child? You shouldn't be a cop. You obviously didn't get the appropriate training. So it's more about playing with their toys and being able to utilize their power in some sense than anything else. You know, it's not, it's, it's not really trying to control someone. If they're in handcuffs, you've already controlled them. They might be difficult. They might be, I don't know, spitting at you or something. Throw them in the back of the cop car. Take them away to jail. Yeah, this is punitive. It's yeah. not to actually maintain order. There's plenty of ways to maintain order with someone who's already in handcuffs. This is basically the cops saying, you just live in a whole different country now. In the kind of country that even if we have you in handcuffs, and in this case it's literal, there's, you can't argue with it, we're going to shock you anyway. If you dare defy us, and, what do you, and how do you think they're going to use this? You think they're only going to use it when they've got a mad guy out of control what, that to the point where they think maybe he'll get out of the handcuffs? No. They're going to use it that if you even look at a cop the wrong way after you've been detained, stun his ass. Show him a lesson. Show him who's in charge. Exactly. It's sick. This is Nick from California. I really liked your rhetoric in general about uh, science and society and progress. 
Uh, the one problem I had, though, is you used oil as an example of how we need to be careful about advancement. But the thing about oil is that I actually learned when I was nine years old, like 1989, about the science of global warming. Throughout the 90s and 2000s, they knew of global warming. The evidence was pretty clear. It wasn't maybe as rock solid as it has been in the last decade. But the fact is, if we had actually used scientific advancement and scientific knowledge at that point, to, to curtail fossil fuel use, we might have actually been okay. And similarly, we might go if we actually uh, used GMOs, but at the first sign of actual real problems with them, actually had an override mechanism within big business to stop it, uh, then I think that the harm would be a, a lot less. Um, but I do agree that corporations actively prevent the government from having those overrides, which is the real problem. And I just want to be clear that science also is a method of observation. Those things like nuclear bombs and other bad things that came, that was using that information, that, those observations, those theories, to make technology which is bad. Okay, science doesn't bring about bad things, so that's knowledge. Science can then be used to bring technology which is bad. I just wanted to clear that point up as well. Thank you, Jay. Keep up the good work. Bye-bye. I just wanted to say for clarification, Jay, uh, my, my last comment wasn't actually pro-GMO. I actually sort of realized that I would be more so, except that we don't have a mechanism in the corporate world necessarily for stopping advancements once they have those negative implications. I think that going ahead with GMOs now or other kinds of things like that would be just fine if we actually had uh, the world superpower actually had a, a regulatory mechanism that worked to stop things like fossil fuel and GMOs if they do go off the rails. I think that I would be completely in support of GMOs uh, if there was good regulation and oversight, but I, you have actually convinced me that caution is needed because we did. We have known for 30 years that uh, the climate was heating because of fossil fuel burning, and we didn't do anything about it. Uh, take care. Hey, Jay. This is Dave from Olympia, Washington. Uh, just calling in response to your most recent episode about family values, and you know specifically the extrapolation to gay rights. In some of the early clips in that, so several of the commenters talked about talked about whether uh, homosexuality and I guess broadly other you know non heteronormative sexual identities are a choice or if they're something you're born with. First of all, that it, it, it struck me when this topic came up that it, this is still a thing. I thought this was. I mean, I thought this was a debate that was done. I thought the science was well-established, that we'd kind of moved on. But also, that's a weird argument. I'm not sure I get the point that anti-gay activists are trying to make by questioning whether or not it's a choice or if it's something you're born with. Frankly, it shouldn't matter. Being a Christian is, quite frankly, a choice. Uh, there's no way that you could argue that's something you're born with, that that's intrinsic to who you are. That's a choice you make during your life. It's clearly influenced by where you're raised. It's clearly influenced by your parents and your society. 
but it's a choice to participate in that culture and believe those things or not or to be any other religion are they implying that it's acceptable to persecute Christians because that's a choice rather than something that's inherent to them again choice of political party being a Republican or a Democrat is a choice it's not something that's inherent to you so is the corollary argument that it's acceptable to persecute someone because of their political affiliation because that's not something that's inherent to their personality that's something that they chose again I can't imagine them arguing that it's acceptable to persecute or discriminate against something because they're Republicans because that's not something you're born as it was a choice and therefore it's acceptable to discriminate against that group it's always just seemed weird to me that that's an, an argument that justifies in their mind it's acceptable to discriminate against non-heterosexuals. Maybe I'm missing something in their logic, but that always seems like a, a yeah and what's your point type of, of argument to me. Anyhow, thought I'd share my thoughts. As always, stay awesome, Jay. Talk to you later. Hey, Jay, this is Melissa from New York. I'm calling about the recent discussion about um, Monsanto and the rest of the food debate. And my little take on it is that the food industry is bad. Yeah, um, and, you know, it's like a lot of other industries, but a lot of the controversies about it are overblown or not quite factually correct. For example, I believe a couple of callers from last time brought up the controversy about Monsanto selling seeds and those seeds blow into other people's farms and then Monsanto sues those people for growing their farms. That's actually not true. It's based on a 1999 Supreme Court case in which um, this yeah, seed blew onto someone's farm, they grew it, but the difference was he harvested the seeds and then planted them the next year. Um, I think it's important for us to make sure that we have all of this information correct and not you know, just keep propagating myths. Um, if you're more interested, the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast, uh, episode 429, has a nice thorough debunking of a lot of different myths about Monsanto. They make the analogy that Monsanto and the rest of the agricultural industry is like the pharmaceutical industry. It's a you know, pretty bad, horrible industry, but it's not necessarily the absolute worst, nor is it, you know the devil incarnate. It's just another business that has a lot of horrible things that they do and a lot of definitely shady things that they do, but it's very important that we don't fall into, you know, the traps of promoting pseudoscience and absolute myths in service of our other goals. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I just want to respond to the last call uh, referring to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. If, if you're familiar with that show at all, it won't surprise you uh, to hear that I, I heard from uh, you know a handful of people basically sending me, uh, you know, directing me to check out their conversations on GMOs and Monsanto and so on. And so rather than like describe what happened in the clip and whatnot, you know, obviously I, I, I followed through on, uh, on one of the clips that a listener had sent to me and instead I'll just, I'll just read my response to that listener. This is what I emailed to the listener. I said, I feel like that clip from skeptics guide entirely misses the point that my latest commentary focused on. They did what I said GMO supporters do all too often, which is to ask the wrong questions. They only focused on whether GMOs are safe to eat while ignoring the specifics of all of the related issues. When addressing Monsanto generally, they created a nauseating false choice between Monsanto being quote demonized and thought of as genuinely quote evil and, 
and it just being another company doing what companies do in a capitalist system. This leaves out the entire discussion about how amoral corporations, not immoral or evil, but amoral, do damage to society with their practices that are solely focused on profit. They don't have to be evil to be bad for society, so it's entirely unhelpful for these hosts to present a choice between Monsanto being evil or harmless, as those aren't the only choices or even antonyms that would make for rational opposing options. So obviously I'm making no secret of the fact that I was pretty frustrated by that clip that the listener sent me to because these hosts were really creating straw man arguments wherein they were you know, creating hypothetical opponents who were making hypothetical arguments about Monsanto being evil or the devil actually using those words, which clearly cast them in an absurd light where you know clearly no one should be taken seriously if they're saying that Monsanto is the devil. And so, you know, and so their argument was the concerns of those people can be completely dismissed because they're clearly crazy and you know we obviously know better because Monsanto is not evil or the devil they're just a capitalist company you know doing what companies do uh, my response to which is yes that's actually the problem that's what rational people have a problem with who don't go to the absurd lengths of calling them evil they recognize that being amoral as a corporation can cause problems for society. So anyways, I, I was frustrated by that, but it reminded me of yet another quote from the Carl Sagan book I've been reading recently. He's just been talking about the skeptics movement, and which uh, he was a big supporter of, um, you know, while he was still alive. But he had this to say about the skeptical movement. He said, the chief deficiency I see in the skeptical movement is in its polarization, us versus them, the sense that we have a monopoly on the truth, that those other people who believe in all those stupid doctrines are morons, that if you're sensible, you'll listen to us, and if not, you're beyond redemption. This is unconstructive. It does not get the message across. It condemns the skeptics to permanent minority status, whereas a compassionate approach that, from the beginning, acknowledges the human roots of pseudoscience and superstition might be much more widely accepted. And so, you know, a lot of what Sagan says for, you know, page after page is essentially skepticism is a really good thing, but don't be a dick about it. And I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. I'm not warning anyone against the skeptical movement. It's something I very much uh, agree with in principle. I'm just warning you to not hurt your own cause by having a bad attitude. I actually felt the effects of this. I'm, I'm generally going to be in agreement with you know the mindset of the those in the skeptical movement uh, and on most issues at least. But in listening to this particular clip, the condescension and smarminess I felt coming from at least one of the hosts gave me this visceral reaction that made me want to disagree with them, even though I was actually in agreement with what was being said. So it's a powerful phenomenon that shouldn't be forgotten when trying to persuade either in politics or in science. Just a word to the wise. So that's going to do it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that's absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and the this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained